Well, let me encourage you to take a Bible and to turn to uh, Luke chapter 2, from which uh, Linda Jane read just a few moments ago. And we come to that very familiar passage soon, but let's pray that God will teach us from his word. Heavenly Father, we bow together in your presence. May your written word be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our chief concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Just over a week ago, I received an email which was entitled... Prayer request, please. I won't read the text of it, but what it described was a situation in which a husband and wife are breaking up and are unlikely to be together over Christmas. It also rated how that same week their three children, aged between four and two, had to be admitted to hospital, one with severe asthma, the other two with bronchial pneumonia. The children have now come home and are slowly improving, but the email was signed, yours in some desperation. Now, I don't know your situation. I don't know what you may have had to face this year or what you may be facing now as Christmas approaches. But that email prompted in part the question I want to ask as we enter this Advent season, and it is this. What do you do with pain and darkness when it's Christmas? How do you celebrate when it's not the best of times for you? Yet when you stop to think about it, It was not the best of times when the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks on the Bethlehem hills. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And yet the angel came with news of great joy that was, he said, for all the people and with a song of celebration that called for God to be praised. Think then with me for a moment about the background to the angel's words. It was not the best of times because Israel was under the control of the Roman legions who were the occupying power. Now, we've never known such an occupation, at least in our lifetime, and so we can barely imagine what it must have been like to be living under such a regime. But Israel knew what it was like, and its citizens knew what it was like, to live under the rule of a foreign power. And for that reason, it was not the best of times for them. And then there were the events of the past year which had turned the lives of Mary and Joseph upside down. It all began with a teenage girl who became pregnant before her marriage had been consummated. 
And for Joseph, who'd been betrothed to her, there was the anguish of thinking that he had been betrayed with all the mistrust and suspicion that that must have created before it was made clear to him by divine revelation that the baby that was in the womb of Mary had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. But even then it was not the best of times. Because in the last month of her pregnancy there was the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem because of the decree that had gone out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of the whole Roman world and that the head of each household was to go up to the town of his birth to be registered. So Joseph had to close up his carpentry shop, forgo his means of livelihood, make the journey from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south with a wife who was in the closing stages of her pregnancy and who could have given birth at any time. Over the past few months in Hamilton Road, we've had quite a few babies born within the congregation. And with one or two, it was a fairly quick dash at the end to the Ulster Hospital. But then the Ulster is only a few miles from Bangor. But imagine, ladies, and I say ladies since we men just cannot understand what it's like. But imagine, ladies, how you would have felt if you'd had to travel... A hundred miles, partly on foot, partly on a donkey, though the Bible doesn't actually make any mention of a donkey, but that was what Mary had to do. And then when they finally got to Bethlehem, there was no place to stay. There wasn't even the offer of a corridor bed in the accident and emergency. Only a barn or a cave that served as a place where animals were housed because that was the only refuge that they could find in this crowded town. Not only so, but it was in that barn that Mary went into labor and gave birth. And for both Mary and Joseph, despite the assurances that they'd received from God concerning the child whom she would bear, it couldn't have been what they themselves would have planned. For the arrival of the baby who was to be given the name Jesus. Because in their preparations for the birth of the child to whom they would be first time parents. They could never have imagined that his first breath would be taken in a barn. And his first bed would be a manger. We of course have made it all so quaint in our Christmas cards and in our nativity plays, and we sing away in a manger as if it were something nice and pretty that the Lord Jesus should be asleep on the hay. But would you have wanted that for your child? Would you have wanted him laid in a cattle trough? It was demeaning, it was humiliating. And we see that in Luke chapter 2 when the angels told the shepherds that this was how they would identify the baby. Because there were other babies in Bethlehem. It was crowded out. So how would they know this baby? The answer is they would find him wrapped in swaddling cloths. Not that that was strange. Because that was how newborn babies were kept warm in those days. By tightly wrapping them in strips of cloth. But what was strange was that they would find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a feed trough. That was going to narrow their options because there wouldn't have been any other babies born like this. Mary, of course, needed time to recover before she could travel back to Galilee. 
And during that time, they were visited by a number of Eastern visitors who came with special gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that was good after all that they'd been through, but there was a bad side to it as well. Because the Magi had unwittingly given away the fact that they were looking for a king. And there was a paranoid ruler called Herod living over in Jerusalem. And he was right behind them. So that Mary and Joseph had to take the child and flee for their lives. And instead of going north to Nazareth, they had to head south and cross the border into Egypt. And they lived there as refugees. And only when Herod had died was it deemed safe for them to return and make their home in Nazareth. Why then were the angels singing? Why were they celebrating in the midst of a country under foreign occupation, in the midst of upheaval and turmoil for a teenage bride and her husband, in the midst of pain and heartache when the infant children of Bethlehem were being slaughtered by Herod's soldiers. We need to answer that question. Because not a year goes by where something of that same darkness does not profoundly affect at least some of our lives. And here we are called by God to celebrate in the midst of a fallen world where there's pain and suffering and heartbreak and death. Why? How do you celebrate Christmas in the midst of pain? Well, it's because one of the things that these Christmas narrative teaches, and they teach us many things, it's because it is possible to celebrate and even to rejoice in the midst of the pain and darkness. And that for at least three reasons. First of all, because God is on his throne. Look at the opening verses of Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. We, of course, are so familiar with those words, we scarcely realize what Luke is saying as he records these details. Because what Luke is declaring here in the space of a few sentences is that God is on his throne and he reigns, not Caesar. And it's important for his readers to know that living as they did under a succession of Roman emperors who were becoming so drunk with their own power that they were claiming to be divine. But Luke here asserts it's not Caesar who is king but God. And him alone. Now do you see how he does it? Tradition has it Luke spent a lot of time with Mary. As he undertook the research he needed to do in preparation for the writing of his two volume work. Which comprises the books of Luke and Acts in our New Testaments. And it seems that he may have visited Jerusalem during the time that Paul was in prison in Caesarea. And during that period, Luke was able to spend time with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because there are things that Luke records that he could only have known if he'd heard them from Mary. 
And you need to imagine Luke and Mary talking together before any of this was ever written. And he's just getting the story. And he says, Mary, you and Joseph were living in Nazareth. So how come you ended up in Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus? And Mary said, well, you know, it was a puzzling thing at the time because I was in the last weeks of pregnancy having been told the child I was to bear had been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And I'd only just come to terms with that after having spent some time with my cousin Elizabeth and come back to Nazareth to prepare when an edict was issued directly from Caesar Augustus that there was to be a census over the whole empire for tax purposes and that we would have to go to Bethlehem to be registered because that was where Joseph's family had come from. And you just see the wheels turning in this brilliant doctor's mind. And he smiles. And he says to himself, that's how I'll begin the story. And look, I'm sure, would have appreciated the comments of Charles Swindle about these few phrases that he used about Caesar Augustus. Listen to what Swindle writes. Who would have cared about the birth of a baby? While the world was watching Rome in all her splendor. Rome, bounded on the west by the Atlantic, on the east by the Euphrates, on the north by the Rhine and Danube, on the south by the Sahara Desert. The Roman Empire was as vast as it was vicious. Political intrigue, racial tension, increased immorality, and enormous military might occupied everyone's attention and conversation. Palestine existed under the crush of Rome's heavy boot. All eyes were on Augustus, that cynical Caesar who demanded a census so as to determine a measure to enlarge taxes. At that time, who was interested in a couple making a long trip south from Nazareth? What could possibly be more important than Caesar's decision in Rome? Who cared about a Jewish baby being born in Bethlehem? God did. And without realizing it, mighty Augustus was only an errand boy for the fulfillment of Micah's prediction. A pawn in the hand of Jehovah, a piece of lint on the pages of prophecy. Luke was putting Augustus in the place that he belonged, under the reign of God. Because 700 years before this baby was born, God was delivering messages through his prophets to his people concerning a coming Messiah. And one of the messages that he sent through the prophets was, and by the way, this Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So how do you get from Nazareth to Bethlehem? God said, I'll use Caesar as my errand boy to get this done. And so when Joseph had to shut his carpenter's shop and leave his job behind, God was on his throne. When Mary had to travel so near to her delivery date, God was on his throne. When they'd no place but a barn to stay, God was on his throne. When there was no place for the baby's bed but a feeding trough, God was on his throne. When the Magi brought those gifts, God was on his throne. When they had to flee to Egypt, God was on his throne. Ruling over it all. And the first reason that we look at the darkness and still celebrate is because even when the darkness falls upon us, God still reigns. 
In the 1930s in Russia, Stalin was ruling with an iron fist in what was a dark time for Christian believers there. And in the small town of Stavropol, there was a woman who loved God. She had a Bible that she studied and a church that she attended. And she tried to stay strong in her faith. But Stalin came and took her pastor away. And then he closed her church. But she still had her Bible and she continued to read it. But the next thing that happened was that her Bible was confiscated. So all that she could do now was to pray. And in particular, she prayed for her grandson, who under the communist regime had become an atheist. And she prayed for him every day until the day she died. But he remained committed to the communist cause. But some years later, as communism began to crumble and the Iron Curtain was finally lifted, a group of Christians came to Stavropol. And they heard that there were thousands of confiscated Russian Bibles stored in a warehouse in the town. And they went to the authorities. And they asked if they could have the Bibles. And they said they couldn't. So they hired trucks to come and take the Bibles from the warehouse. And there was a man who came to help. Not a member of the Christian group. Just one of the people whom they hired to help shift the Bibles. And as he was taking a lunch break, he picked up one of the thousands of Bibles and went over to the corner to eat his lunch. And as he opened the Bible, there on the flyleaf was his grandmother's name. Yes, Stalin had taken her pastor. Stalin had taken her church. Stalin had taken her Bible. Stalin, it seemed, had even taken her grandson, but God was still on his throne. And in ruling over those details, he placed that Bible at the exact place in time where years and years later, her grandson would reach down and pick it up. And as he sat there and read it along with the notes that his grandmother had written in her Bible, Jesus Christ slammed into his life. Even when the darkness descends, We can still celebrate at Christmas because God is on his throne. And the second thing that comes out of this text is that a savior has been born. What do the angels tell the shepherds? Look again at the text, verse 10. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. Shepherds, this is why we're singing. This is why we're celebrating. This is why you're hearing music like you've never heard before and will never hear again on this earth. But what's he to save Israel from? Is he to save Israel from Roman oppression? No. Because the angel of the Lord had come also to Joseph in a dream and he said, Joseph, this child who's to be born is to be given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And what that means is that God was preparing to break the back of sin and death. So it was that John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, the forerunner, the voice of one crying in the desert, could look at him when he saw him coming towards him one day as he was baptizing at the River Jordan. And John said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And those who heard him didn't need any further explanation because lamb had no meaning for them except as an animal of sacrifice. There goes the lamb of God who will be sacrificed for sins. And when Peter later confessed him as the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus then began to explain to his disciples that he must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life because death no longer will have the last word. And later still the Apostle Paul could say, as he stared death in the face and was torn between continuing in gospel ministry and suffering a martyr's death, he could say with confidence that at the end of the day, if he were to die, it would be with Christ, which is better by far. And when he wrote to the church at Corinth to give them instruction about the resurrection of the Christian dead, he cried out, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And he answers by asserting that its sting has been drawn, its power has been defeated through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the worst thing that death can do? Death can come and say, I will take you. I will take you this year. You will not see another Christmas day. But if you're a Christian, you can say, take me if you will. I will go to be with Christ. But I will take your husband or I'll take your wife. But if they are in Christ, you can say, take them if you will, because they will live with Christ and I shall see them quite soon. But I will take your child. You love no one more than you do your child. Yes, and I will weep, but I will not weep for my child, for he shall be with Christ. I shall weep because there's hurt and pain in my heart, but I shall sing because I will see my child again. Or what about sin? What if Satan should come to you and say, you've sinned even though you claim to be a Christian, you have sinned. But you say, yes, I have, and yes, I do. But I never claimed that I wasn't a sinner. I only claimed that I had a savior. All right, he says, you will die and I will stand you before God and condemn you. And you say, you do that. You stand me before God and I will stand before him in the cross of Christ, dressed in his righteousness. And I will say, who will bring any charge against me? And no one will be able to do it. Not even you, Satan. Because Christ has taken every charge and there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in him. Why were those angels singing in the midst of the darkness that covered the earth? They were singing because God is on his throne. They were singing because a savior had been born and sin and death would now be defeated. And thirdly, they were singing because Jesus Christ is Lord. Look again at what the angel said, verse 11. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Now, again, it's all too easy for us to miss the force of this statement as to who this Savior is and what he will be. So let's compare this with something which Paul writes in Romans Chapter 10, verse 9. Let me encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 10. We'll look at a couple of verses here in just a moment. 
If you were to go back to the Hebrew Scriptures, that is to the Old Testament, you would find that the word for God is the word El or Elohim. And in the language of the New Testament, which is Greek, the word is Theos, which we simply translate into English as God. And that's equivalent to what he is. He is God. But who he is is a different thing. You see, if you ask me, what are you? The answer is, I'm a man. But if you ask, who are you? The answer is, I'm David Johnston. Because there's a difference between the what and the who. And that distinction is also made in the Bible with regard to God. To the question, what are you? The answer is, Elohim or Theos, God. But to the question, who are you? The answer is a name. Which the scholars think was pronounced Yahweh. Though no one can be sure because the Jews considered the name so sacred they didn't even pronounce it. So when it came to translating that name from Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, into Greek, the language of the New Testament, they didn't know how to do it. So they simply used the word kurios, which translates into English as Lord. Look then at Romans chapter 10, verse 13, where Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. Now, back in the Hebrew it says, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. But in the Greek in which Paul was writing, it's just the word kurios, the word for Lord. But set alongside that Romans 10, verse 9, and see how this works out. Because when Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord... And follows that by saying, quoting from the Old Testament, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's making a deliberate connection between who God is and who Jesus is. And since to confess Jesus as Lord and to call upon the name of Yahweh for salvation are one and the same, then what that is saying is that when we confess Jesus as Lord, it means that Jesus is Yahweh, which means that Jesus is God. So do you begin to see the import of what the angel was saying to the shepherds when he said that the Savior who had been born was Christ the Lord? Christ is the New Testament equivalent of Messiah. And to say that the Savior Jesus who has been born is Christ the Lord is to say this is no ordinary man. But this is none other than God himself come in the flesh and as Lord and God. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And of his kingdom there will be no end because he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus Christ is Lord. You're beginning to see why the angels were celebrating. God is on his throne. The Savior has been born. Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the character in A.A. Millen's Winnie the Pooh, the one called Eeyore, who was a real down in the mouth 
One day he was invited to a party by Owl. And Owl came to Eeyore and he said, Christopher Robin is giving a party. Very interesting, said Eeyore. I suppose they will be sending me down the odd bits which got trodden on. No, there's an invitation for you. An invitation? Yes. Who dropped it? It's asking you to the party tomorrow. Eeyore just shook his head and he said, You must mean Piglet. The little fellow with the excellent ears, that's Piglet. I'll tell him. No, no, said Owl, getting quite upset. It's you. Are you sure? Of course I'm sure. Christopher Robin said all of them. Tell all of them. All of them except Eeyore. No, all of them, said Owl. Ah, said Eeyore. A mistake, no doubt. But still, I shall come. Only don't blame me if it rains. <laughs> Friends, Jesus has invited us to a party, to a feast, to a banquet. That's the language he himself used. In many of his parables, it's the language that we find right at the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation. It's a party which begins here and goes into eternity and is never over. But most of us, maybe even at times all of us, bear too much of a resemblance to old Eeyore. Because the problem with us is not that we celebrate the gospel too much, but that we celebrate it too little. I don't know most of the folk here today, but some of you will have known much darkness in your lives this year. And none of us knows what darkness may come into our lives next year. But please do know this. That through the darkness of the past year, and no matter what darkness comes next year, God is on his throne. A savior has been born. Sin and death have been defeated. And Jesus Christ is Lord. And to him be the glory and the praise, now and forever. Amen.